Hi, everyone. Welcome. Sorry, I was putting my remote down uh, because I was muting my television before the while the World Series is going on. I'm not going to cut any of this. Hi, everyone. Welcome uh, to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo, joined tonight by my co-host, uh, Matt DeBear. Matt, you are in a hotel right now. I am in beautiful Grand Rapids, Michigan, where it's like 35 and kind of snowy and generally disgusting. Wasn't there a movie called Welcome to Grand Rapids or something? I... Sure, we'll go with that. You you would know way more about that than me. There, oh god, I can't think of what it was, but I could have sworn there was some like movie set in Grand Rapids. Without, I'm probably embarrassing myself. If you want to correct me, uh, tweet at me. My handle on Twitter is at psumat2005. Going off of that, let's talk about what we're going to talk about, which is we decided with this midweek edition of the pod, we wanted to turn it over to you guys, turn this into a mailbag podcast, uh, send out a few requests for questions on our Twitter account, and we got a collection. Uh, we cut through a few of them, uh, but we're we about 12 or so, so we'll get through all of those. We might spin off a few that you guys suggested to us and do something a little bit different, and then if we have time at the end, we will talk about this week's Big Ten slate, which is really bad. Uh, but before we get into any of that, Matt, let's go with our first question. Uh, it's This has actually turned into a little bit of a joke among Penn State fans, uh, but it is serious, and the question is serious, and it, there is some merit to it, which is why does Penn State's defense have trouble confessing consistently defending screen passes? I think it's a, a combination of a couple things. I think, as a general rule, Penn State's defensive line is pretty aggressive, and that obviously plays right into what an offense wants you to do um, when they when they call that screen pass. So I think you end up with four guys upfield um, on the wrong side of a bunch of off, big offensive linemen trying to block downfield. And I think the second part of that is with a couple of exceptions, you've got a pretty inexperienced um, defense, like I said, with a couple of exceptions behind them. And so Especially you've got a bunch secondary. of... Exactly, yeah. So you've got a bunch of linemen that take themselves out of the play because that's just the scheme is aggressive. And you've got a secondary and a couple of key linebackers that are just, you know, still learning the position, learning their reads, et cetera. Um, I think, you too, you have to credit the opposing offenses i think one of the reasons it's successful is that's a, a weakness in penn state's defense now where i think they've done a really good job this year for the most part they've gotten burned a couple times is they've tackled really well um so you don't see those you know a play that's designed to go for five yards going for 15 they're getting that guy in the ground generally speaking pretty quickly and like i said you can find some exceptions to the the long runny bell catch and run thanks to two key holding penalties notwithstanding um but i think it's for the most part, any defense that you're running is going to have a weakness, and it's about the opposition offense executing against that defense in the right way. I think that's probably most of it, but I think there are some things that are more than anything attributable to youth. Yeah, I the big thing for me is Penn State's defense and how aggressive it is. I Everyone who has ever played uh, a college football video game or Madden or anyone who, uh, anyone who has ever watched a game that, that wasn't Penn State where they can kind of pay attention to the commentary knows that when the defense is aggressive, you call a screen pass and you're usually able to figure something out against them. It's a, it is a weakness. Uh, it, well, that's almost weird because like I don't know how huge of a weakness it is. I think it's uh, something that has stuck out a few times it stuck out against Buffalo when they did it. It stuck out when Pitt was able to do it. I think Ronnie Bell might have gotten a first down or two on one, but it it's not a thing that on a weekly basis, Matt, I, like Penn State gets hammered with. My guess is that this goes back to last year's Ohio State game where Ohio State couldn't do anything on offense for three quarters and then in the fourth quarter, like, just started hammering Penn State with screen passes. And I think that's that's just something that Penn State fans have kind of had in the back of their mind ever since then. So whenever they see that, uh, it, it turns into, oh my God, uh, it, it's happening again. I don't think it's as big of an issue as, say, 
you, you know, the fact that Penn State's pass rush has, Penn State's pass rush has been, I don't want to say neutralized, uh, Penn State's pass rush has sometimes struggled with bigger, more physical offensive lines. We saw it uh, with Pitt, I and mean, we saw it with Buffalo, uh, especially for a half. We saw it with Michigan. Uh, I did we see it with Iowa? Like, like I blocked that game out of my memory, but like that's just been Penn State's. Like that's a bigger concern, or the fact that they have a lot of young guys on the defense, which plays to the screen pass thing, is a bigger concern. I don't think, and you can agree or disagree with me with this. I think on the list of concerns that I have about uh, this defense and where it's able to, where it has those little weak points, I don't think getting consistently burned on third and long on screen passes is particularly high on that list. No, like I said, I think a big part of it is um, teams taking advantage of a weakness. I will say in the the Michigan game this year, and this pains me to say, I'm going to give Josh Gaddis some credit for, um, they didn't really run a whole lot of Mm -hmm. screenplays until the second half when Penn State had really attacked the middle of their defense, or the middle of their offense, excuse me, um, which exposed them on the edges. And so they had some more space out there. Um, But like we've both said, I don't think it's a, a huge concern. I think it's um, the key to defending them for the most part is making the tackle when you have them. And I think for the most part, they've been able to do that this year. Moving on to question number two. Uh, this is the question uh, that we have all been, I think, reckoning with to one extent or another over the last however many however many weeks this year. Is it fair to get frustrated when PSU is up by 21 on the road in a downpour with eight minutes left against an eighth grade offense and Cliff is still in the game when Ronnie calls three straight passes to go three and out? Or should I just smile and shut up because eight and oh? <laughs> One, God bless you for calling Michigan State's offense eighth grade. I don't know if I would give them that much credit, but it's all in the eye of the beholder. Uh, so this is an interesting question to me because it, it seems more like a question of when do you pull your starters than what it, you know what we have been talking like and I, and I read it over another time. Matt, what do you think on leave, leaving Clifford in that sort of a game? Like I don't have a gigantic problem with it, but I can absolutely see why someone would. To to answer the two parts of the question, I'm just going to say yes. <laughs> I think it's it's fair to wonder about some of the play calls on Saturday in particular. I didn't have any problem with the starters being in the game. It was wasn't a huge blowout. Yes, the game was was decided, but I think in Clifford's case especially, you need him to get game reps. Um, and regardless of what Michigan State's offense is going to do or not going to do, which is probably a better way to put it. Um, he needs to get reps and the one series in particular that everyone's pointed out is the three pass plays. The first pass play they ran was just a simple screen pass or probably more of like a a wide receiver screen to Bowers, I think is what it was. Um, And you can argue that you don't need to throw the ball in those conditions because he ended up dropping it. It kind of looked like it kind of went right through his hands, which led to the second two passes to try and keep the drive alive. But um, I don't have a huge problem with, with the way they handled the personnel. I think, there were some calls that you'd like back, but um, in my opinion, it felt safe to make those calls. We talked a little bit about that on on Sunday when we did the uh, the recap pod. Um, as for the second part of the question, um, I don't want to say that you should shut up and just smile because Penn State's eight and zero. Because I think every all of us will agree that there's things that need to be improved upon, especially with the the final f- three games and Rutgers to close the year. Um, but at the same time, I think it's worth remembering that Penn State is 8-0, and they've done a lot more good than bad through those eight games, um, and they've found ways to win games that um, they hadn't, especially last year. So um, it's it's a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B on that one for me. It's interesting because like, I, I think that any criticism – of the team, how it's performed, the coaching staff, the players, anything that you might do is totally fair as long as you have the 8-0 and thing in the back of your head. I think 
it can go a little too far in either directions. Like I do think the people in the event, to the extent that there are people that say we're eight and zero, shut up. Like you probably shouldn't do that. And then I think the people who just believe the sky is falling, like don't do that. Like you should be able to look at the team and everything it does and be able to have a critical eye while except while admitting the fact that again, they should not have been eight and out. Like I, I picked them to get, have two losses by this point. Uh, Matt picked them to have one or two by this point. Like this is a really good football team, but at the same time, it's not a perfect football team. So whenever you talk about that stuff, just make sure, make sure you try and keep it in line with where your expectations were at the beginning of the season, where they are now and how, you can admit that, yeah, they might lose to Minnesota. They might lose to Ohio State. They might go to a bowl game against an SEC team and lose to them. But that's fine. Like, th- this year has been a really fun year so far. Let's enjoy it for what it is right now. And again, be critical, but don't let it get in the way of enjoying this team because that's you're just going to die sooner if you do that. Um, moving on to question number three here, we finally – are we ready to finally admit that the offensive line has quietly grown into a pretty good unit? Not perfect, but still pretty good? Yeah. I mean, I think that they have been a bit of a surprise. Like, Sean Clifford has been sacked 14 times this year. Uh, he, Some of that is his ability to move around and use his legs and all that. But he, I think, Matt, and if you're asking me what my biggest surprise was, on the offensive side of the ball outside of Noah Kane, it is probably the play of this offensive line. Yeah. I, th- I think the way the question was phrased is perfect. You know, they're not, not perfect. Um, I'd not even say that. I'm sure they'd say they're great, but they're pretty good. And I think even you could argue that potentially some of those sack numbers are inflated because especially um, in certain games at certain moments, Clifford's got a little bit of happy feet and has bailed on, on clean pockets or escaped um, in a direction where he didn't have room when there was, another escape alley. Um, so I think it's um, it's taken a big step forward from, I think, where things were last year. I don't know if that's just the new personnel or um, you know a, an offensive game plan that's a little bit more conducive to what they're able to handle, but um, the steps that they've taken from last year to this year and really the, the previous two or three years to this year, um, this feels like the first time that you can talk about the offensive line as as a strength, not the strength, but a unit that doesn't limit what you want to do for the most part. And outside of Steven, like Steven Gonzalez is the stalwart on that offensive line. Will Fries has played a lot of football, but it's been a lot of up and down football. And Michael Mennett is like, he, he played last year, but we've seen him take a step forward this year, which is what you want to see. We've seen Fries take a step forward. We see Gonzalez be his usual solid self. And then there's, Rashid Walker at left tackle with Des Holmes apparently, uh, you know, spelling him every once in a while. And then Mike Miranda and CJ Thorpe kind of going back and forth uh, at guard. I think if you asked me, I would have taken perfectly competent for this offensive line. But I've been plenty surprised by them. And th- this is 100% speculation. I'm not reporting anything or anything like that. But it seemed like this could have been a really uh, – there could have had to have been a conversation about Matt, about Matt Limegrover at the end of the year if Penn State's offensive line had another inconsistent year. I don't know if there necessarily would have been, but at a certain point you would have had to look at how the offensive line has progressed and how it has grown and all that. And there are certainly complaints about the past few years' offensive lines – this year has been fine, and I'm, I, I find it really hard to come to terms with, and Matt, you can absolutely uh, correct me if I'm wrong, this offensive line is good. Next year's offensive line has the potential to be like insanely good when you consider that they're only they're losing, they could lose up to, what, three or four guys? They're only definitely going to lose one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it all starts as far as, you know, to look ahead just a, a little bit, and we're allowed to do that because we're a blog and it's a bye week and we don't have anything else to talk about, um, that it all starts with Rasheed Walker on the left side. I think he's light years ahead of where you expect a first-time 
starting left tackle to be in the Big Ten. You look at what he's done against the likes of Epinesa, um, Hutchinson from Michigan. He's faced some really talented guys, especially in the last two or three weeks, um, and has more than held his own. I think, you know, to look ahead a little bit to the Chase Young show, that is going to be... one draft pick in, in April. Um, but you've got him for one more year, uh, or at least one more year. You've got um, everyone else other than uh, – sorry, I just saw the uh, Nationals take the lead in game Let's seven. Let's of... go. My head was down for a second. What? Go na- – J- just to be clear, Matt and I want the Washington Nationals to win the World Series. Yes, and if you if you don't want them to win, then you're wrong. I'm sorry. Yes, correct. Anyway, back to the offensive line and, and – and whatnot, but um, Bill, you and I have talked about this a little bit um, on our own, but I think it wouldn't be a total shock to see Will Fries or Michael Mennett look to the NFL. Um, like you said, they've both played a lot of football, um, kind of like the Ryan Bates factor last year. Um, Connor McGovern, the same situation. Guys that have played a lot of football at Penn State that are ready to move on. I'm not saying they're going to, but it wouldn't surprise me. But the one thing that I think has helped this group more than anything is there is probably seven or eight guys this uh coaching staff's comfortable playing in most situations um and that doesn't even include a guy like juice scruggs who i think was counted on to be um a contributor this year before his um an auto accident in the spring um but assuming he's able to get back to full health he's another guy who's going to factor in on the interior of the offensive line um and it's a it's a young group that um they're not having to force guys into roles earlier than they would have otherwise and mm-hmm. i think Mm-hmm. That's something we've talked about for for three years. Is you know you look across the line. Other than Walker, these are guys that are in their fourth or fifth year in the program, which is just a huge, huge benefit, both from a an experience standpoint and just from a physical maturity standpoint. You've got guys that are um, you know more men than than boys, for for lack of a better term, that are just physically mature and able to to handle more on every aspect of the game. Moving on to question number four, what do James Franklin and perhaps other members of the coaching staff eat for breakfast? This is a great question. It comes from our friend, the toaster. Uh, if you know what that means, uh, you're that's very good. If you don't, whatever. Uh, I'm just going to go down the list here, and we're going to just... Yeah, we'll do all the position coaches. Uh, James Franklin, he seems to me like oatmeal, brown sugar, maybe a banana, something like that. I was going to say like granola bar or something. Yeah, like something, something, like something healthy and, and quick. Get some fruit in there, some strawberries, some raspberry, blueberry, that kind of thing. Uh, Brent Pry, he's from Altuda. He eats something that has gravy on it. Some sort of sausage and egg and cheese yeah. sandwich casserole thing. Uh, Ricky Ronnie is a tough one for me. He's from Colorado, so I'm just going to say he eats wheatgrass. <laughs> I don't, something something very healthy with with um like uh like avocado toast or something with the logo keep, maybe keep keep, uh, keep his mind sharp he went to Cornell uh Joe Warig I didn't know where he was from he's from Edmonds Washington uh, which let, let me just check because if he if that is Eastern Washington Eastern Washington is basically Alabama. oh no wait no that's not a that's not Eastern Washington that's uh, that, that is on a body of water somewhere right above Seattle. Okay. So, but he did go to school to be, a, to get a degree in law enforcement and then a master's in correctional administration. So donuts, donuts. Yeah. It's gotta be donuts. Uh, Tim Banks. Uh, I, I, I don't know what would, what would Tim Banks be? He's, Oh, he's from Detroit. What do you, what do people from Detroit eat for breakfast? Um, the biggest, warmest thing we can find because it's cold here like 10 months out of the year. Tyler Bowen, former offensive lineman, he eats steak. Uh, several steaks. Several steaks. Uh, Matt Limegrover, several steaks. We don't have to do that one he again. Eats, he eats the steaks that Tyler Bowen does not eat. <laughs> uh, Dred Parker, he's from Kentucky, so he... What, bourbon. What, yeah, bourbon. Uh, Juwan Sider, he went to... Isn't he from West Virginia? No, he's from Florida, but he went to WVU, so he eats something that is on a biscuit uh, because West Virginia, Morgantown has a biscuit place that I can't think of that is just the best thing on earth, so it's probably that. Terry Smith, uh, he's from Pittsburgh, so whatever he eats has fries and coleslaw on it. Uh, yeah, I can't think of anything there. Sean Spencer, he eats a motorcycle. 
I don't know. I'm not questioning any of those. All right, number five. Why can't our offense incorporate a screen? Can you imagine KJ Hamler popping a Bobby Engram middle screen or Journey Brown turning on the Jets? I think there's a pretty... I don't want to say pretty easy answer to this, Matt, but I think there is an answer to it. Uh, and I'm interested in hearing your thoughts before I give mine. I think Penn State runs more screens than they're given credit for. They're not running them maybe as frequently as many of us would like. Um, you know, the, the the one game where I, I think it would have made sense given what you were seeing from a defensive perspective is against Michigan. And they tried to run one of those little tunnel screens to KJ Hamler early and it got knocked down at the line. And if it didn't, it was probably getting intercepted. Uh, Michigan just read it really, really well. Um, but I'm, I'm fo- I focused so much in the last three games just because it's kind of been a season unto itself, but both Michigan state and Iowa's defense aren't as aggressive as most. And that's kind of surprising for Michigan state, but they've, really dialed back their their attacking mindset because their secondary just isn't what it used to be. But screen passes aren't as successful, aren't as um, effective against defenses that aren't attacking like we talked about with Penn State's defense. So I think they there are more opportunities to run them. I thought they were really um, effective using them against Maryland, a team that was you know all jacked up to play, and I think they used it really to slow down um, their linebackers and, and uh, secondary pressure, but it just really hasn't been a huge focal point of the offense really since Joe Moorhead got here four years ago. So, um, you know, for whatever reason, it's just not something they look to, um, and it's just probably not part of the offensive philosophy more than anything. Um, which is, it'll be interesting to see what they do against. Um, I don't quote me on what Minnesota or, or Indiana run, but against Ohio State, a team that's in theory, going to look to get to to Sean Clifford and, and be aggressive. That's kind of the next game you'd circle where it seems to be an effective play call against certain types of looks. If I had to guess, I would say that the general philosophy of Penn State's offense is get the ball to playmakers in space, and I don't think they view screens as an effective way to do that. Uh, if you're getting the ball to KJ Ham, where you want it to be in a situation like we saw with his touchdown, uh, you, you know his long touchdown against Michigan, where he's out, he is ahead of steam, he has a chance to run past someone, he can catch a ball in stride and just get going. Uh, I think the inherent issue with a screen pass is that you are throwing the ball to a guy like a KJ Hamler or a Journey Brown, and they're catching it and they're not moving, or they're moving towards the ball and then have to change direction and go upfield and have to read blocks and do all that stuff. And I, if I had to guess, it stems from just that general philosophy that they have on offense. Uh, having said that, if they wanted to incorporate a screen pass with how they have a guy like Justin Shorter who can block, uh, you know, who can block down the field, Jahan Dotson, how he can block down the field, Pat Fryermuth with how good of a blocker he is. I think that there's certainly room for that. And I think, like you mentioned, Matt, seeing something like that against Ohio State might be a good idea, if only because any time you can have the game occur in a place where Ohio State's offense isn't ha- Ohio State's defensive line isn't happening, that's a good idea. But we'll see. That's a, that, that is an interesting thing to save for you know, to keep in the back of our minds for a few weeks down the road, especially if that game does turn into the, you know, matchup of top four teams that we all think it could be. Uh, number six, this is uh, th- this is actually a question that we're going to turn to a different question. Better chance of happening. Shorter gets three catches in a game or an opposing offensive line actually gets called for holding. Uh, the the obvious answer is Justin Shorter gets called for three catches in a game and gets three catches in a game because no offensive line will ever be called for holding. But I wanted to take that shorter bit and turn it into a question that we could talk about for this final month of the season, which is, what's some stuff, Matt, that you want to see out of Penn State's offense as it goes into this tough stretch and then Rutgers to close the year? I, we've got a, a roundtable going up on the site um, on either on Thursday or Friday, um, and it's one of the questions that uh, the three of us that, that, re- that uh, took part in it answered. The, kind of the overarching theme for me 
on the offensive side of the ball is just a level of consistency. Um, we've seen, especially the last two games, jumping out to those big leads, everything really clicking early. And then the foot coming off the gas or the execution all of a sudden not being there or a combination of the two or, or other factors. And like we were talking about a little bit earlier with one of the first or second questions um, about the offense just kind of sputtering against Michigan State, you can certainly get away with that. Michigan, they got away with it, um, quite literally. Um, I didn't think against Iowa it was really a factor. Certainly against Purdue it was. Um, I think part of that is a young team learning how to to win games and how to close out games. Part of that is Penn State's offensive philosophy adapting to um, how to play in those situations and um, I think there's a level of game management that comes into it overall, but to the the question's point, I think this the really the, the reason the question was asked probably was to to ask about Justin Shorter. I think getting mo- one or two more guys consistently involved in, in the passing game. It's been pretty much KJ Hamler, Pat Fryermuth, and Jahan Dotson, and I'd even say Dotson has kind of become a distant third just based on. Um, the way receivers have been targeted, that might not be the case. It just kind of feels that way from watching the game. But if you can get shorter or one more guy involved um, as a more consistent threat, Shorter's only been targeted, I think it's an average of like two, maybe two and a half times per game that he's, um, the games he's played. Obviously he missed, you know, parts of one full game and part of another with um, injury and then split time in his first game back. Um, it's hard to answer without going back and watching the film carefully and the, the all 22 views and things like that. I'm convinced that part of this is a young quarterback that is looking towards the biggest playmaker on the offense, KJ Hamler. Um, and through eight games, they've been able to get away with it because of um, just who they've been facing for the most part. That's not going to work against Ohio state. Um, I think you can probably get away with it in the next two games and certainly against Rutgers. Um, but you're going to need a third or fourth weapon um, in the passing game when you go to Columbus just based on the number of athletes that the Buckeyes can throw out there at linebacker and safety, which is how they've been able to take advantage of, of Hamler in space. And they've got linebackers that can run with Fryermuth and um, you know certainly cornerbacks that can match up with Dodson. So you're going to have opportunities there, you would think, where your primary options are going to be covered. So... Part of this to me feels like it's he's just waiting to break out, um, and I think part of it is. And Bill, you and I talked about this earlier in the week. I went and looked at Garrett Wilson from Ohio State, um, who's a five-star true freshman receiver. So not a, exactly apples to apples there as far as age, but shorter missed most of last year with injury, and I think it was pretty clear even when he came back he was still kind of getting his feet under him. So for all intents and purposes, this is his, his first real year. Um, where he's been for the most part healthy um, from camp on. And he, I think has nine catches for 109 yards. Garrett Wilson has 14 for like 135. And when you compare the talent that Ohio state has at receiver to what Penn state has, they're certainly productive on offense. No one's going to argue that. Um, but they've got talented guys ahead of them too. They're that are, that are catching the ball and I become are more involved in the offense. So, um, I used the Allen Robinson comparison with someone earlier this week as well, where it took him till his third year on campus before he, he broke out. And part of that was an offensive scheme change as well. But it's really easy from a outside perspective, and I'm probably guilty of this too, to look at receiver and say, hey, that's an easy transition. I think it's parts of it are. Um, but when you consider the injury factor, the offense that Shorter came from in high school, um, there's, it's more than just you know being a great athlete and getting open. It's you know, using your hands to to beat press coverage. It's understanding coverages and and how to get open against certain looks and things like that. Um, so I'm I think you're going to see more of him um, in these final four games. Um, it just it stands to reason that they've got this weapon that you know has has his feet under him now. He's played you know six or seven games this fall. Um, so I I think you're going to see he's not going to all of a sudden become the focal point of the passing game, but I think you're going to see way more of him than we have up to this point over the final month. Yeah. I mean, that's, 
you mentioned what my big thing is, which is just someone becoming that other, that extra element of the passing game. Hamler's great, Fryermuth's great, Dotson has shown to be good in certain situations, but they really could use that next guy, whether it's incorporating the running backs more, whether it's getting Nick Bowers involved more, whether it's finding a Justin Shorter, a Daniel George, uh, someone else in the passing game who can consistently catch the football and not even make something happen. I mean, one of the biggest plays of Penn State's season in 2017 that that's pretty unheralded was on that final drive against Iowa, fourth and five, there was, you know, none of the touchdown, none of Saquon doing Saquon stuff happens if not for the fact that they just threw a ball to Saeed Blacknall one yard past the line of scrimmage and he was able to haul it and fall down. That's all I really want out of one of these other dudes. Uh, I would like to see the running game get a little bit more consistent. I think we saw some flashes of that last week. But for me, it's just getting a little bit more diversity in the passing game. I think you are... 100% correct about Clifford locking on to the guy that he's known forever sometimes and then also locking on to his safety valve in Fryermuth. Uh, but he's a young guy. Hopefully in this this bye week here, he's able to iron some stuff out like we saw him look like he ironed some stuff out uh, heading into Michigan State, and they're able to get a little bit more diverse of a passing game in a – in the coming weeks. Uh, number seven, is it weird that I'm slightly more worried about Indiana than Minnesota? I would say yes for two reasons. One, I think Minnesota is a better football team, and two, that game is on the road, whereas Penn State and uh, Indiana is at home. And outside of Urban Meyer, it's been very hard for anyone to beat Penn State at home over the last couple of years. So, and Mark D'Antonio doing something, you know, pulling something out of his word that I can't say on this podcast. Uh, yeah, this, this question was asked by uh, former Roar Lions or Stafford Len, so I'm going to shame him. I think Minnesota is very clearly the tougher game, Matt. Do you agree? Yeah, I think the one thing that would worry me from, I don't know if you know if worry is the right word, but the one thing that jumps out to me that would put Indiana on a, a higher level of concern, so to speak, would be the trap game factor. Um, you know, Minnesota 8-0 on the road, um, you know, it's going to be a, a top, whether they 12th or 13th, it's going to be a matchup of, of two um, highly ranked teams. It's going to have a lot of buzz. Kind of hard to look past that one. Um, the Indiana game falling after that and before you go to Columbus um, has that. And they're, and they're a solid team, like we've talked about a couple times um, throughout the year. Um, you're not facing 1997-era Indiana. This is a pretty solid football team um, that – has has really looked impressive um, in a lot of ways, especially if uh, if Penix is healthy at quarterback. Um, so that that letdown game factor is really the only thing that jumps out to me. But like you said, Bill, I don't expect Penn State to lose games at home to teams that they have superior talent to. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Penix. They have him. They have Stevie Scott, a really good running back. They're a very solid football team, which is high. Again, I have a really hard time seeing them lose at home. Uh, number eight, a uh, question about night games in November. Is it allowed in the Big Ten? Do both universities have to okay it? Uh, I'm, Matt, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's basically uh, – it's one, the Big Ten generally prefers to not do night games – later in the year once it gets to be really cold out. Uh, but also it comes down to things like TV stuff. I, I'm pretty sure this all stems from there was a rumbling that the reason the Penn State and Minnesota is not a night game uh, was Minnesota declined that. But P.J. Fleck said today that isn't necessarily the case. Yeah, there I think it was a deputy athletic director or someone in, in that sort of position said, um, I think leading up to their Maryland game last week, that um, – Neither of their no- November home games would be night games. So the Penn State game, and I believe the Iowa game is at home for them. But you know that I, regardless, they have two games at home over in November. My understanding of the rule is, and this might not be completely accurate either, is one that um, night games throughout the year have to be announced um, no later or no earlier, 
12, 12 days out is the latest you can go before you announce a, a late uh, night game in the Big Ten, regardless of the time of year. Um, November night games can happen now. Um, the previous TV deal did not allow it, um, which seems really dumb and stupid, but it also gets cold when the sun goes down, and even when the sun's up in Big Ten country. Um, I do believe that the road team has to agree to a road night game um, in some aspect. And I don't know if that's, you know, you know, the two weeks before or going before the year or whatever it might be. Um, but I think, obviously, I think this question is, is specifically referring to the Minnesota game and the fact that it's a noon kickoff, um, pro- more than likely to avoid going up against Alabama LSU at 3.30. Um, but I think there's there's a lot of factors that go into it, especially once the calendar turns in November, and it's a matter of a lot of different entities agreeing to, to do it. Uh, moving on to... <laughs> Question number nine, which is a question that I am sure every Penn State fan wants to hear a very specific answer to. Other than the picture surfacing that he randomly visited, are there any whispers that the Lions have a meaningful chance of flipping Julian Fleming? To which I would say, in terms of uh, any whispers, probably not. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can't think of anything, Matt. I would be absolutely shocked. Um, I would also be absolutely shocked if Penn State staff wasn't keeping in touch with him to some degree. Um, there's been no rumblings that that we've heard um, that would indicate that it's anything other than Julian Fleming driving a couple hours to visit. I believe it's a. This sounds really terrible for a, a middle-aged man to be saying, but I believe he's going to visit his girlfriend by all indications of the social media posts that have been making the rounds. Um, so with that said, um, Penn state's receiver class is actually sneaky. Good. I, I just pulled up the two, four, seven, uh, commitment page. I think they have like five receivers committed. Yep. Um, so you've got two, four stars in, uh, Keandre Lambert and Jaden Dotton. Um, I think Lambert's a really, really good player. Um, he was, Oh, this, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. He was almost uh, a plan B for Ohio State and Clemson, among others. So um, kind of a, a step at the most, probably a half step below guys like Julian Fleming, um, those elite level receivers, but a really, really solid player. Um, Jaden Dotton reminds me of an awful lot of like a Chris Godwin, um, maybe not as as athletic at this point, but he's a big receiver, 6'3", 170, um, really good hands. Um, this might be my favorite, uh, not a favorite player in the class, but maybe my favorite receiver is Parker Washington, who just got a bump to a four star, mm-hmm. um, earlier in the week. He is five ten two oh one. He is almost like a smaller version of Deshaun Hamilton is kind of how I've started thinking of him really, really solid route runner, especially for a, a high school senior, um, gets in and out of his breaks really smoothly. Um, just kind of a natural athleticism to him. Um, and if you get, a, I think we had this on the site in one of our, uh, for the future posts in the last couple of weeks, he had an absolutely ridiculous one handed catch, um, in the end zone uh, a week or two ago that probably underscores more than anything and just how good his hands are. Um, and then you get into, um, I gotta scroll down here a little bit to a couple, um, kind of raw, but really, um, high level potential, um, Malik Maiga, who is from Quebec, um, just a, a freak of an athlete, 6'4", 195. Um, he had, I want to say... Testing numbers are off the charts, correct? Yeah, his numbers are comparable to, um, I don't know if it was Fleming, one of the, one of the big five-star receivers in this class, his numbers are very comparable to. Obviously, a little rougher prospect at this point, um, playing high school football in Canada. He hasn't transferred to... Um, an American high school, like some of the the Canadians on Penn state's roster have. Um, but he's a guy that if it all comes together, is just going to be, you know, one of those impossible to cover guys, um, really, really high ceiling. And then, um, the uh, junior college transfer, Norval black from Lackawanna, um, had a really, really outstanding camp performance, uh, by all indications earlier in the summer when he earned his offer and pretty much committed on the spot. So, You've heard me say it before, um, Bill and listeners, that I love players who get go to camp and earn their offer there. 
Um, it's kind of a, a little bit of a pressure environment. So, you know, you've got a little bit of the, the nerves and, and, you know, a lot riding on it, but you're also, you know, getting the coaches are getting their a firsthand look at what you do, how you, how you're coached, how receptive you are to, to different things. And they're really able to, you know, have you work through drills that, you know, show what they're looking for, um, to show if you can do X, Y, or Z. So, um, really from top to bottom, the class is a little bit of everything. Now, do you want to add someone like Julian Fleming to the group? Of course, if you, if he comes back around, um, as, as slim as that chance might be, then you, you find room for him. But, um, that was a really long way to, to say, probably not as an answer to the question. Yeah. I mean, if it, on the off chance that they are able to get, you, you know, their foot back in, in the door and then eventually get through the door and like, really sell him on Penn State like they have they have to do that take him and figure out the rest later because one he's from your backyard he's from an hour and 15 minutes off of campus at a really really good program in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania two he's the number one player in the country on ESPN I want to say and 24-7's composite has him as the number three player in the country. And three, anytime you could flip a player of that caliber from Ohio State, you have, 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 have to do it. So uh, here's to hoping. I'm not optimistic. Number, number 10, why can't our offense ever seem to manufacture a run-pass-balance, time-consuming, defense-resting, 10-plus play drive in the second half of a recent game. Um, I would probably say the answer to that is the... Well, I think we have to look game by game on that, Matt. With the the Iowa game... uh, God, I I, I actually... I'm actually not sure what it would be for the Iowa game. Like, I'll just chalk it up to that was a football game against Iowa that was a little bit closer than they would have liked. But at the end of that game, they realized that Noah Kane was the guy to do it, so they just kept him in and kept giving him the ball, and that worked. Michigan, um, I'd love to know how threatened they actually felt by Michigan because they certainly played that second half like they were never too worried about losing that game. Uh, and then Michigan State, they absolutely were not threatened by them, so I think they were just trying stuff, and they weren't too concerned about uh, it working or not because, as a previous question indicated, uh, Michigan State had an eighth-grade offense. Uh, Matt, what do, under. What do you... Under. <laughs> yes, under. What do you think? Um, Like we've said a couple of times, I think a lot of this is almost – you know, PTSD in a sense from you know, the Ohio state game last year, the Rose bowl, um, I guess the last two Ohio state games, I think part of it is just schematic. This offense is not built to put together 10, 12, 15 play drives that take six minutes off the clock. Um, it's designed to hit big plays down the field, get the ball into the hands of your, your playmakers and let them make big plays. Um, now, with that said, it's certainly a weakness in trying to close out a game. Um, I would say in the the Iowa game, I thought they they managed the offense very well. I think the two turnovers helped with that, which led to short fields and allowed them to uh, score two touchdowns, even if Pat Firemuth um, was denied his his uh, d- deserved and earned touchdown. Um. I thought they managed the clock pretty well in that, and obviously they were able to to get the one first down late that they needed after Iowa cut it to 12 on the back of, I think, but two penalties and an absolutely ridiculous catch. Um, and like I talked about back with that game, I don't think anyone ever felt really threatened that Iowa was going to get back into that game. Um, obviously easy to say in hindsight. Um, but I think, the like I said, the biggest reason you don't see it, I don't think it's what they're necessarily built to do. Um, now <laughs> it's certainly a, a, a hole, a gap in, in strategy. Um, I saw someone today in one of our, our group texts that Bill and I are both in say that Moorhead, I guess, commented on this at some point. Um, I don't know how recently it was that he felt he got too conservative against Ohio state two years ago. Um, it's, it's kind of one of those, um, chicken or egg things to me, I guess, is you, you, 
it's really, really hard to have an offense that does both. I think they've gotten closer to having that ability to to kill off games with a Noah Kane kind of running back. Um, but I don't think this is not never going to be the offense that puts together that 15 play seven minute drive um, where you've got you know 50 percent pass, 50 percent run. It's just not what they're built to do. Yeah, I, I think that it's. Part of it, I would also wager, is that style points really do matter. <laughs> like, there's all the philosophical stuff, there's the schematic stuff, there's the personnel stuff, all that. But then you also have to remember that Penn State's, the way that college football works right now, for a team like Penn State that is very, very possibly going to be in a position at the end of the year where it is going to be considered for a potentially considered for a playoff spot where there's going to be whomever wins the SEC on top especially if they're an undefeated SEC champ Ohio State is an undefeated Big 10 champ and out and Clemson as an undefeated uh, ACC champ Oklahoma losing now out of the way means that that final Otherwise, Baylor is able to run the table. That they're really the one team. As I look through this, that I think can kind of muck that up, and maybe Oregon. But if Penn State is one of the one-loss non-conference champions, and there's a whole lot of one-loss conference champions and one of one-loss non-conference champions, and they have all the wins that they have against ranked opponents by the end of the year, that could potentially be. Iowa, Michigan, Minnesota, who knows what happens with Indiana, probably not Michigan State, probably not Pitt. If they're able to get style points in all of those games, that is a little something that works in their favor. Uh, You look at a team like Minnesota, which is very high uh, in the polls despite not playing anyone. Well, and they're also high in advanced stats by not playing anyone. Well, they've also kicked the hell out of everyone they've played over the last month of the season. So that's something that helps and works in their favor. I think what James Franklin and Ricky Ronnie and the staff want to do is they want to get as many style points as possible so that it gives them a little bit of a cushion for whatever might happen at the end of the year. And I think that's a bit of... It's somewhat high risk... I mean, they haven't lost any games, so whatever. And pretty high reward, I mean, potentially high reward. That's kind of twisting myself into a pretzel a bit to uh, justify it, but I, I, I think that is just a potential additional way that they end up looking at that thing. Number 11, this is a question that I, uh, we're, we're going to start looking into next year's team. 11 has an A and a B, and I'm going to read both of them. A. Which of the four running backs transfer after the season? No chance they all come back to split carries. B, who are some transfer portal possibilities? Running back seems likely the depths at defensive end and linebacker could be a burden on that side of the ball too. The, I, I will answer this question the way that everyone should answer this question, which is to say, hell if I know. Uh, I didn't know what I wanted at any point when I was between the ages of 18 and 22 years old. I don't expect college students to be able to make big major decisions this far out. Whomever makes them, makes them, and whatever else happens, happens. Having said all that, Matt, let's play transfer. Let's play the transfer portal game. Um, we'll say running back. We'll, we'll go off of the, this question: running back, defensive end, and linebacker. Do you want? Do you want to play? Is there anyone that you're looking at? Do you want to be looking at anyone, anything like that? As for running back, I I think it stands to reason that someone probably looks around. I don't know who the logical candidate is. Um, in, in most cases, regardless of the position, I think where you start is you look at guys that have graduated or will be graduating um, because there's nothing – um, stopping them from being able to go somewhere and play right away, which is the primary reason just about any player is looking to transfer. I don't think any of the running backs are in that situation. I could be wrong, but um, I don't believe um, Journey Brown will have graduated um, by the end of the spring. I don't believe Ricky Slade has been here long enough um, where it would seem like he would have enough credits, but who knows? Um, you know, it's logical to look at it and you have two more four-star running backs coming in next year. Um, that it's going to get really crowded with a lot of really talented guys really quickly. So um, 
I wouldn't be shocked if, if someone does. Um, I think I hate speculating about specific players cause you don't know what their, um, their priorities are. You know, obviously a lot of these guys came to Penn state cause they love Penn state and that might supersede their desire to go be a bigger factor on a, a team somewhere else. Um, you know, obviously the guys that have been here longer have established friendships and relationships and, and everything that goes along with that. Um, with that said, though, I think you can look down a number of positions and find guys that look like they're just being passed in the depth chart by younger guys and um, have their degree or, be, or close to getting it where they can go somewhere. Um, that's, for the most part, the guys that left um, last year after last season were kind of in that boat where they were, um, you know, they, they see the same things that we see as fans. Um, obviously, see it a little bit closer that there's a lot of really talented guys coming in and you know, they either see it in reps or they see it from their conversations with their coaches that there's no guarantee they're going to be uh, seeing the field as much as they have been to this point. So they want to go somewhere and, and play, you know, I got like Tommy Stevens that wanted to go somewhere where he felt like he had a better opportunity in his last year of eligibility to show what he can do. Um, so I think it's, it's, kind of the nature of the beast anymore, especially when you're recruiting at the level that Penn state is that, um, there's just always going to be guys that are getting passed, um, by more talented or, or guys that are better, better football players at this point or have more potential or whatever it might be. Um, the other thing, this guys, I'm talking through this that I think is worth mentioning too. I think James Franklin and his staff do a really good job of being upfront with their guys as far as, you know, especially after the season, you know, where they, where they slot in. I think that's why you see and saw the number of guys that went to move on um, after last year. It's, it's human nature for us to do all that, but I, I think it's important to remember that so much of this depends on circumstance. Uh, maybe a defensive, uh, you, you know, maybe a defensive end decides to transfer, but let's say, they're accounting for Yitor Grossmatos going to the NFL draft, but also then Shaka Tony decides he wants to suddenly the new, another spot opens up a uh, linebacker a little bit different. Cause I can't imagine Ellis Brooks making that jump, but let's say he does. And a guy like, you know, Charlie catcher suddenly has more time opening up for him. Just all this stuff. There's so much that happens has to happen between then uh, between now and then that I don't know how I feel about, say, saying that Ricky Slade's going to train. Because I think that's probably what this question is. Does a guy like Ricky Slade or Jeremy Brown transfer? Hell if I know. I don't know anything. I'm an idiot. If you listen to this podcast long enough, you know that. Moving on to our final question, while we're here projecting out the future, is the 2019 team better than the 2020 team based on early NFL departures? And the only way that I think I can answer this is uh, ask me this question again when I know what KJ Hamler and half of the offensive line are doing, because if they bring, there is a chance that Penn state's offense enters next season, only having to replace Steven Gonzalez, which is insane. If that happens, Penn, the Penn state goes from a team that has legitimate big 10 title aspirations to Penn state being a team with legitimate national title aspirations. I, again, I think we need to, wait and see on that point. But if Penn State's able to do really good retention, I think that's really good retention of draft eligible guys. That's what we can come to expect. If they're not able to do that, they're still going to be a good football team, just maybe not the kind of football team that uh, is, is going 11-1, 12-0, and playing for a nat- competing for a national title at the end of the year. Uh, I'm going to guess you're going to say basically the exact same thing, Matt. Yeah, I think you know you're. It's kind of goes along with what I was saying with the previous question. You know, when you recruit at the high level, you're going to have guys that the NFL wants, um, guys that are, are ready to go get paid rather than than not, um, regardless of what the the media reports about the NCAA uh, name engine name image and likeness stuff earlier this week. But um, you touched on the offensive side of the ball, Bill. Even if they lose everyone that they can, could conceivably lose they're still going to be returning seven or eight starters. Um, and the way they've recruited, you're plugging in other highly regarded guys behind them that have been brought along in, 
you know, a sensible way to, to develop them appropriately. Um, you know, the same thing on the defense, they're going to lose, um, you know, John Reed, Robert Windsor and Garrett Taylor are, are graduating. I think we all kind of assume gross Matos is going to the NFL. Um, Ken Cam Brown, but you look at the guys that are ready to plug in there and, um, the number of guys that don't seem like they're probably ready to leave quite yet. And, um, who knows? There's a lot, a lot happens between now and then, but I think on paper, it's fair to say that Penn State's 2020 version can be a lot better than this year's version, just based on the talent that is we're seeing right now that is eligible to come back next year. That's it. Uh, that's all for questions. We're on 55 minutes of this. We'll go really quick on Big Ten stuff because the uh, Matt, uh, you you don't like the Gold State Warriors, correct? Uh, no, I, I have a very unsoft spot for them in they, my, my sports fandom. They are currently hosting the Phoenix Suns, and they're down 46-14, to 14, so I want to go through this quick and I, so I can go watch that and laugh very hard. And we have to celebrate uh, what looks like the Nats winning the World Series. So let's start Michigan-Maryland noon kick ABC uh, from College Park. I don't think this is going – I think Michigan's probably hit their groove right as Maryland's at a point where I think they kind of put the white flag up on this season. Unless you get let down Michigan after uh, back-to-back big games and the big home win at Michigan, and Anthony McFarland does what he did to Ohio State last year to, to somehow keep Maryland in the game, I, this it can't possibly be close. Noon kick, Fox. Uh, oh. Yeah, oh. Nebraska, <laughs> Nebraska at Purdue. Uh, do you know what the line is on this one? Because I'm kind of surprised it's this low. I'm guessing it's... I don't even know who would be favored in this unless there's Rondell Moore news that he's, he's back. Last I saw, he's questionable. Um, I'm guessing Purdue by like a couple maybe. Nebraska's a three-point favorite. Like, I, I feel like Nebraska, like Nebraska absolutely should be better than they are. But, man, you know it's bleak when on a neutral field they expect you to be like less than a touchdown over this Purdue team. I, Nebraska probably wins, but I don't feel good about saying that. Yeah, Purdue's generally pretty good at home, but they got rolled there by Illinois a week ago. Um, like I said, Rondell Moore is is questionable. Last I saw, um, Jack Plummer's still still the starting quarterback. So it, I can't believe anyone's going to watch any of these Big Ten games. This is just a the college football slate, other than Georgia, Florida, is just absolutely garbage this weekend. Here's a here's a football game. Three thirty. That's debatable. Three thirty kick. BTN Rutgers going to Illinois. Matt, we're playing the ticket price game on this one because I cannot believe the price of tickets on this. What do you think it is? Ten bucks. Oh brother. Oh brother, you are wrong. Oh no. Oh, Thirty-eight dollars. No. Wait, what? Like American dollars? Eight dollars. Uh, don't watch this game. Illinois is going to win it. You won't feel good about it. Do you agree? I, uh, Rutgers has their, their one game winning streak and Lovey Smith's beard. That's, that's all I got. Uh, final one, final question. There are four big 10 games this week and every single one of them is really bad. Uh, seven o'clock kick FS one Northwestern going to Indiana, Indiana an 11 point favorite. I think, I think that Indiana probably starts off a bit slow in this one just because Northwestern does have a defense. I would not be surprised if Indiana just beat the brakes off of them. You know, we, we love making fun of Rutgers and, and how bad Rutgers is. Um, Northwestern also very bad. I think they're 1-7 they're in seven now, 1-6. in six. Um, They can't score. They, they, have, they can't be averaging more than 10 points a game. Um you said they they play defense, but uh, Indiana is just going to absolutely wax them unless things get really weird because it is Bloomington. Yeah, I, I'm. I really have no. And, and you know what? That's actually a big one for Indiana because then they go into their bye week and then they have Penn State. So I, I think I really think they're going to try and end this portion of their schedule on a high note. Just like I hope we were able to end this 
portion of the podcast on a high note. Thank you, as always, uh, for listening to the silliness that we put out there. And thank you to all your questions, even if we didn't get around to answering them. We do appreciate them. Uh, make sure you're keeping an eye on our Twitter account, because uh, we might decide to do this some other time. Who knows? Uh, make sure you're following us on Twitter, all our various social media channels. Make sure you're subscribing to the podcast, leaving us a review on iTunes. Make sure you keep reading and supporting the site, and you do that by going out and you buy some t-shirts. One last time, thank you for listening to this edition of War Lions Radio. For my co-host, Matt DeBear, I'm Bill DeFilippo. Take care, everyone. And if you like the Houston Astros, I am not sorry for what the Washington Nationals are doing to your team.